Welcome to Stuff to Blow Your Mind from HowStuffWorks.com. Hey, welcome to Stuff to Blow Your Mind. My name is Robert Lamb. And I'm Julie Douglas. Julie, you know, uh, making decisions in this world can be really taxing. Uh, we've discussed that before. Even the smallest decisions in life uh, are often difficult to make. But put yourself in the in the boots, in the, the gold-studded, jewel-encrusted boots of a, of a king, an say emperor, Elvis? Or, or an Elvis. Uh, somebody whose uh, <laughs> who's decisions are... Are, are sweeping uh, that change the, uh, the 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 scape of international politics of mm-hmm. economics. We're talking about huge ripple effect, right? Globally, globally, huge uh, political leaders, leaders of multinational companies, uh, policymakers. The the decisions that they make uh, can have uh, catastrophic effects. Mm-hmm. They can they can change this, the the world for the better or for the worse. Right. So in uh, in ancient times, you, you would have the emperor, and he would have uh, like a sorcerer or a diviner there to. I was going to say an oracle or an oracle. You know, there would be some sort of magical go-to man uh, to bounce these ideas off of. Mm-hmm. Be like, hey, uh, I'm trying to figure out what to do about this. Uh, I don't know this protest situation in the streets, um, but I, I'm not really sure what to do. Uh, can you look into your magic pool of water and mm-hmm. see what the future is going to be, mm-hmm. um, and tell me what I should do? Mm-hmm. Now, of course, there's no such thing as magic. There's, uh, so, I'm sorry. Oh, next you're going to tell me that my fortune cookies are full of bunk. That the messages. Yeah. (sighs) Except the ones where the fortune is just general advice. Right. But, but we, we love the idea of being able to do that. Mainly we want to, we want to test our assumptions about what should be done Mm -hmm. versus the outcome of those assumptions in the real world. So what you're saying Mm -hmm. is that if leaders had some sort of magic eight ball. Right. That they could ask a question of, and it could it actually spit out an answer that was valid. Mm-hmm. We could uh, really manage our lives on a global scale in a much cleaner, better way. That's the idea. But of course, to power that magic eight ball, you would need uh, some pretty intense computer technology, and you would you would basically have to have a computer model of everything under there. Uh, in, in the same way, in our attempts to understand global climate. Mm-hmm. Uh, and just not even global climate, just local weather to find out whether whether we should have a, a picnic tomorrow. Can I plan on mowing my yard? Should I w- bring a raincoat with me to the to the train station? That kind of thing. Well, we depend on these these climate models, mm-hmm. which, uh, uh, would do, as we've discussed in the past, creating an, ac- an accurate climate model is very difficult. There are so many factors involved. It's uh, uh, it's a largely chaotic system. And it's, it's difficult to judge, uh, like, every, every day uh, that you in, into the future that you look, the more uh, flawed the model becomes. Right. But uh, but still, we, we depend on the computer models for uh, for our understanding of what the weather is going to be. And uh, if conceivably, if we created a complex enough computer model, mm-hmm. could we not have a, a kind of simulation of the world in which to test our ideas. So you would have this politician or this policymaker somewhere mm-hmm. uh, in a position of power. Gold stilettos. Yeah, gold stilettos. And she's thinking to herself, what should I do? Should I enact this policy or this policy? Well, bring me the magic eight ball mm-hmm. and I will ask it. And the magic eight ball will then run two scenarios in the in its simulation of the world. One in which... Uh, Policy A is enacted and one in which policy B is enacted. Okay. But this magic eight ball would have to aggregate data of our entire existence, right? So we're right. talking about the economic existence, our social um, existence, the geographical existence, um, you know, the, the physics of our existence. All of this 
uh, would have to be something that we could get our arms around all this data. Right. And, and, and that we actually have a name for this, all this data. We call it big data. Big data. Big data. Well, that's, that's a yeah. good name for it. And it's kind of like, imagine, like the way I was kind of thinking, because I'm writing about some uh, related issues here, uh, for work. So I've been, been researching. And the way I tend to think of it is imagine, uh, imagine like this, this field, all right? This flat plane, right? Mm-hmm. Well, it's not completely flat. There's some slight bumps in it. Enough to where you have numerous puddles of water. And then it starts raining, right? Those puddles get bigger and bigger until those puddles all meet. And then you have like a, a giant lake of, and so it's, it, that's the kind of, uh, that's how I like, I end up imagining big data because, uh, every day we create an estimated 2.5 quintillion bytes of data. So to the point that 90% of the data in the world today has been created in the last two years alone. And, and when I say big data, like this is all these little, puddles of data that mm-hmm. form this giant lake of big data. We're talking about everything from climate sensors to your to everyone's Facebook and Twitter updates to digital texts, text, mm-hmm. uh, digital video and picture uploads, stuff you're putting on Flickr, stuff you're putting on YouTube to you know, just to show visions of the world, uh, ideas about what the world's doing, online transaction records, cell phone GPS signals. All of it is coming together into this big picture uh, of big data. Right. And right now it's chaos to us, right? I mean, this is not something right. that we've tried to manage before to get a picture of what our lives look like using all of this big data. Although some people, some institutions have tried to do it at a smaller scale like NASA. Right. It's kind of like a, imagine a dude or a lady who starts just picking up uh, buying a book every day and doesn't, doesn't have any kind of accurate uh, library system going in their house. They just bring a book or two home. They Maybe they read a little bit of one. They throw one here, throw one here. Eventually they have an entire house just filled with books, mm-hmm. but they have no system of organization to understand how many books they have, how their selection in one category stacks up against another, or even kind of like just a general idea of what kind of books they like. Um, so we, we're we're in this household of big data where data is just everywhere on everything, but we we tend to lack a complete picture right. uh, of what that data and is telling us. What we're getting to is that uh, there is actually in the works a uh, a proposal and an enactment of this idea. It's a billion and a half dollar idea, a yeah. uh, com- computing system to actually try to wrangle all of this data. Right. Uh, it all falls under the um, this project known as uh, Future ICT, which is really three parts. There's A, a planetary nervous system. And the idea here is you would, um, it's like a global sensor network throwing in all sorts of socioeconomic, environmental, technological data from around the world. Mm-hmm. Uh, again, like 90% of the big data, de- of the big data in the world is from the last two years. All there, you know, it's the, the timeliness of this data as it's rolling in. Mm-hmm. So if you put up enough, put up enough sensors, you, you hooked into enough existing data networks, you would have like a real time picture of what is happening in the world. In all these different spheres. Okay, and the guy who is heading it all up is uh, Dirk Helbing. He's mm-hmm. the scientific coordinator of Future ICT, which is the, the, what you're talking about, this large-scale European research program to explore and manage mm-hmm. our future. And he's talking about the necessity to understand complex, global, socially interactive systems. Yeah. And he's saying that we live in a global world, and this requires new tools. Yeah, and uh, so I mentioned the first tool, the planetary nervous system. Another tool, which we'll get into later, is the global participatory platform, which you can think of in a way sort of like the the, uh, the interactive uh, uh, aspect of this project. Mm-hmm. But then the really core thing, the thing that we're going to talk in detail about here, is the living Earth simulator. And this is exactly what we were talking about, the, the engine that would drive this imaginary eight ball. 
uh, Magic 8-Ball. I, I love this idea because to me it seems like a souped-up second life. Yeah, or right? it's, or it's you can't help but, even though it's it's probably not kosher to really talk about the Matrix anymore mm-hmm. after the, the last two films, but it sounds very Matrix-y, like the idea that here is... Here, there's a simulated world mm-hmm. where we, we would we would bring in all this data to create a model of the world on which we can test uh, possible choices. Well, and have you ever seen Google's Liquid Earth? I don't think I have. It's really cool. It's uh, it's, it was actually created as like someone's twenty percent project over at Google. So twenty percent of this guy's time, he decided to dedicate to the Google Earth model that they have. You know, mm-hmm. they can zoom in on the cities, and he created this highly immersive program. It has eight panels surrounding you, so you almost feel like you're in a video game. And the idea, I think, is that you know you can zoom in and out, and you can see the Taj Mahal, and you can see all the details. Um, so when I think about this uh, Earth simulator, this living Earth simulator, I think about this sort of immersive situation where you can be on a city street, you can zoom in, and you'll have all of this data overlaid on top of it real time. Right. And again, real time is, is key uh, when we're talking about all this data. Um, so uh, Dr. Dirk... Um, Dr. Dirk? <laughs> Dr. Dirk, uh, he, um, he's very expressive about, about all of this. He makes the point that in the past we, we didn't really have the data to come up with a systemic science um, of how our society works. But now we have this data. Right. And of the, course, the data, who could have conceived of it, right? Right, right. Who could have conceived of it in the past? And he's saying it's, it's necessary to keep up with globalization, technological change. You have all these systems like smashing into each other. In fact, he often refers to the living or simulator as a knowledge collider. The idea that you would take all this data and in the same way that the, uh, the Large Hadron Collider is, is slamming particles together to try to understand how the universe works. Mm-hmm. This is about like slamming all this information together and seeing what happens. Which I like this idea yeah. because, uh, although I will say that it doesn't sound like it's going to be quite that dynamic because this is, this is predictive modeling that we're talking about. Right. And as, and as we t- discussed in the, the weather example, predictive modeling is, uh, Imperfect at best. Uh, it, it, there, there are various arguments about what can be done with computer modeling of, of complex systems. There are plenty of arguments that, that state that you cannot form a, a perfect model of a complex system. Right. That you're, you're never going to be able to, to really get down into the exact minutiae of it. Uh, it's kind of like with our, uh, our ability to understand weather. You can look at data telling you what uh, the weather has been like at a particular place, uh, particular times of the year. And you can use that and you can create a general idea of what the weather is going to be in the future. Mm-hmm. You know, I can see like, uh, say March, uh, 3rd. We can take March 3rd for Atlanta, Georgia, uh, run it, uh, all the way through the past as far as the uh, recorded data goes. And we can get a general idea of what March 3rds in the future are going to be. Cause it's, there, there are seasonal, uh, aspects to all of this. There, yeah. there's recurrence. But, but it's not that far away from Richard's Almanac, right? Or right. Paul Richard's Almanac, mm-hmm. which is what, 200 years old or something that they've been, um, you know, recording all of the weather systems to try to predict the best time to plant crops and so on and so forth. So yeah, there's, it's different, um, you know, technologies, of course, to, are in play now that inform us, but it's, you know, the unpredictability factor is still there. Um, but before we talk about that, I just wanted to talk about the impetus for this whole, um, yes, yes. creation, this, the, the, uh, future ICT. Because, because it's a, we can agree that it's a wonderful idea, mm-hmm. but what, 
potentially gets the money behind this idea. There's got, and, uh, and, and that's what you're going to Yeah, now. billion and a half dollars. Uh, the European Commission selected the Living Earth Simulator, which is part of this project, right, mm-hmm. as a way to help predict economic conditions. And this was brought on by the Greek financial crisis. Uh, because as we know now, it's severely undermined the European Union. Right. And a lot of people are saying, well, perhaps, uh, you know, Greece should pull out of the Eurozone. And if they were to do that, what would be the ramifications? You know, you would have uh, a highly devalued currency for Greece. But what does this mean on a practical level for, for a global economy? Does yeah. this mean that trade routes would alter? Would there be uh, less disease, uh, actually, because there would be less tourists, less people traveling to Greece? Um, They're saying, I wish we had a magic eight ball to ask about this. Yeah, and Dr. Yeah. Dirk says, I have one. He says, oh, I wait, can wait. build one for you. Yeah, It'll yeah. only cost, uh, what's the price tag again? A billion and a half. There you go. Yeah. yeah. So they have all these different questions about what would happen if, if this were the scenario. Because, of course, they don't want Greece necessarily to pull out and, you know, for the EU to crumble. Right. Right. I mean, this, these are big stakes. It's like a big economic Jenga game. Um, <laughs> yeah, it is. It is. Um, and, and then also, you know, you can use this um, for, for other um, huge uh, situations or, or high impact situations, I should say. Like, for instance, a volcano eruption right. um, could tell you what the short-term economic growth is going to be as well as the effect it may have on everything from education to the distribution of vaccines. Political unrest. um uh, disease epidemics was another one. Mm-hmm. Uh, how diseases spread across the the, yeah, uh, the world. Yeah. How we should be prepared for this spread. Um, and that was actually modeled on uh, how the dollar bills are circulated in the United States. Hmm. And which is really interesting that they use this as a model. And again, we'll talk about the limitations of uh, using these types of models for other instances, such as uh, disease. Uh, epidemics. One of the real world systems that this is uh, based on is, uh, uh, is actually the urban traffic, the idea of uh, typically congested traffic in an mm-hmm. urban area. And how do you uh, how do you figure out what's going wrong? How do you combat it? How do you deal with the little pockets of unrest and change that eventually cascade into just complete gridlock. Right. And, and uh, Dirk Helbing, this is really his knowledge center. Right. You know, this is something he's been concentrating on in his career. Um, in, in this case, it's human and machine traffic patterns. Mm-hmm. Helbing actually consulted on a project that modeled the movement of pedestrians during the Hajj in Mecca, mm-hmm. uh, resulting in a billion dollars of street and bridge rejiggering to prevent deaths from trampling. So this that's is, good, uh, right? Yeah, this is, of course, one of the pillars of Islam uh, and the, the idea that if you were able you take this pilgrimage to Mecca mm-hmm. to see the holy sites. Uh, so uh, it, it creates a, a lot of challenges uh, just for the infrastructure in Saudi Arabia to how do you deal with all these uh, these visitors coming to the country to to see these sites and do so in a way that doesn't, like you say, result in trampling, result mm-hmm. in uh, starvation. Uh, not starvation, but dehydration. Uh, I watched an interesting video um, years back that was actually put out by the Saudi government uh, that, that it was kind of their... Their video of saying, "Hey, we got it under control. Uh, don't worry when you come on the Hajj." Uh, so this is like a public service announcement. Yeah, yeah, and uh, you know, so it was definitely coming from from the Saudi government. But it, but it was really interesting because they did go into all these various things that they are doing and, and or have done in the past to try and and, and limit the congestion or um, or or things like dehydration, making sure there's plenty of water. 
Yeah. Yeah. And this is a really cool model. Uh, but of course, there are limitations to this type of model. And in particular, if you look at the Hajj or highways, everyone mm-hmm. is moving in the same direction, right? Mm-hmm. This is highly predictable, uh, which m- underlies one of the main criticisms of trying to predict the future based on these types of models. Um, what we know and can predict is actually far less than what we don't actually know. Yeah, because so. in real life, there's not just a um, northbound lane and a southbound lane and a turn lane there. It's, it's, right. it's tremendously more complex. And every every layer of complexity, um, I mean, it just makes the overall model that much more difficult to create. Right. And there's actually a term for this. Yes. Yes. They're called black swan events. And uh-huh. when we return, we shall reveal what the black swan is. The black swan, uh, we're back. The, the black swan is uh, is not a crazy ballerina who turns into a bird. It's true. Yeah, mm-hmm. just, uh, just to get that out there. Uh, but it is actually an incredible theory about not only the outliers who change the world, but the way that we... Try the way the way that we don't understand mm-hmm. um, the importance of those outliers in retrospect. And the reason why we, we it's called the Black Swan uh, event or Black Swan events is because for I don't know uh, decades, hundreds of years actually, people thought that there were no black swans because all that had been documented were white swans, right? Right. So people thought really like th- there are no black swans. Um, there are only white swans. And in fact, they were so confident of this information that black swan became sort of a, this, this, uh, code word for, for, you know, something not existing. Yeah. Right? It'd just be something of magical fantasy, really. Yeah, yeah. There's, there's actually a Latin term that talks about this, but lo and behold, some dude in the 1800s, uh, visits Australia, documents a black swan. And all of a sudden, this this uh, certainty, this this absolute idea that there were no black swans, only white swans, was turned on its head. Yeah, it, it reminds me a lot of two events in the last uh, several years. One being the uh, the maybe half hour or so that it seemed possible that we had found Bigfoot, and Bigfoot's body was in a <laughs> cooler in, so. uh, in middle Georgia. Uh-huh. Uh, and of course, that turned out to be complete um, bunk. Bunk. But uh, but for a, for a very brief time, I was like, oh my goodness, what if they? What if this is it? What mm-hmm. if if the the world in which Bigfoot is an unproven mythical creature is about to end, mm-hmm. and I am entering into a new world in which Bigfoot is a reality, a proven reality. What would that be like? Another example would be in the last uh, year, and the jury's still out on exactly what these findings mean, but uh, the findings out of CERN uh, regarding faster-than-light particles. Mm-hmm. The idea, I mean, the, the speed of light is, is, is uh, based on our understanding of, of physics, uh, a universal speed limit. Nothing can go faster than that. Um, because, it, I mean, it would break the universe. It would break our understanding right. of the universe. It would be a black swan. Mm-hmm. And then suddenly we have this finding saying, yeah, we, we clocked some, uh, some uh, subatomic particles going faster than the speed of light. And everybody's like, whoa, I, I doubt it. Uh, you know, let's, let's do some, let's study this. Let's, uh, let's find out if, uh, if your, if your findings are actually uh, accurate here. Mm-hmm. But if they are, it changes everything. It, it, it just forces us to, compl- to enter this new world. Where the rules are are different than we uh, originally uh, perceived them to be. Right. There's a, a book by Nassim Nicholas Taleb, and he's a distinguished professor of risk engineering at the Polytechnic Institute at NYU. Mm-hmm. Um, he has this book, Black Swan, and he talks about these Black Swan events as having three attributes, and uh, the attributes are rarity, extreme impact, and retrospective. And what he means by that is the first for 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 it to be a Black Swan event, it has to be an outlier, right? Mm-hmm. It's outside of our realm of expectations. 
um, because nothing in the past would have predicted that it existed, right? Right. Second, it carries an extreme impact. The mm-hmm. ripples of its existence are far-reaching. Right, and like the photon, I mean, the, the subatomic particle example here definitely lines up with those two, right. if, if true. yeah. Right, if true, if true, yeah. right? That's that's the key there for that. Third, in spite of its outlier status, human nature makes us concoct explanations for its occurrence after the, after the fact, uh, making it explainable to us and seemingly predictable. Mm-hmm. Okay, so he says that uh, there are examples of this all around us, like uh, the 2004 tsunami, uh, the rise of Hitler, mm-hmm. 9-11, uh, the advent of the Internet. He says they're all, all black swan events that we didn't expect were outliers, changed our culture um, mm-hmm. forever, right? Uh, changed society, changed world events, and uh, and also... The things that we, we scrambled afterward to try to explain their existence, to, to try to make them feel not so much like these, uh, voids of knowledge to us. Right. Because a lot of people would say, oh, well, if we could just only have done this, we would have, you know, uh, avoided the tsunami or avoided 9-11. So he actually says, and this is a quote from his book, um, this is from the intro. He says, what did people learn from the 9-11 episode? They, did they learn that some events, owing to their dynamics, stand largely outside the realm of the predictable? No. Did they learn the built-in defect of conventional wisdom? No. What they what did they figure out? They learned precise rules for avoiding Islamic proto-terrorists in tall buildings. And this, he says, is a real problem uh, because we learn so specifically that we try to apply this model Again, you know, we're talking about model systems mm-hmm. over and over again. So he's saying, okay, we learned some sort of lesson from there, but it's so specific. It, it deals with Islamic predators and tall buildings that it doesn't necessarily say that we learned a lesson there that helps us to avoid terrorism altogether. Right. I mean, and that comes down to just the way our, our minds work. And mm-hmm. we were talking about this before the podcast. Uh, inevitably, when we're talking about the way we think about the world, we end up falling back on on uh, examples that involve our ancestors and like saber-toothed tigers. Mm-hmm. Like the saber-toothed tiger uh, attacks you, you learn a lesson, but it's going to be a very specific lesson uh, in, in these cases. How to avoid being eaten. How did you right. avoid being eaten on this particular uh, this particular encounter? Right. We, we He would argue that, um, Talib would argue that our brains really aren't built for thinking per se, mm-hmm. because if our ancestors had stopped to think, uh, you know, that probably would have been, torn apart by the saber-toothed tiger, right? Mm-hmm. Um, that we are so much more invested in pattern recognition and uh, predictability models than unpredictability. Right. So he's saying that now we live in this entirely complex world and we can't really conceive of all the black swans around us. You know, think about the 1800s. Probably it was a lot more simple, right? You, you were going to churn some butter, milk some cows. Um, things were, were, you had far less choices. Um, it was far less complex world yeah so he's saying really our brains haven't caught up to it and that's why we are actually blind to all of the black swans around us well uh you know just think back uh you know i'm speaking to everyone uh to you the listener uh just think back on your own life and and just how how little of it you could have possibly predicted Mm -hmm. you could you know all the all the little things that have that have led you to this place in your life uh that the decisions the 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 bits of of just fate and blind luck and uh and here you are uh, but you look back on it and you see it, uh, uh, the way our perspective, uh, on it works. Um, you, you don't see those black swans even in our own personal history. 
Right. Um, but, but if you really look closely and you see that there probably are a series of random events, right? We, mm-hmm. we plan to the best of our ability and things happen and, uh, life takes us down different roads, right? Mm-hmm. And, you know, in retrospect, we can probably explain some of those away and, and apply some sort of pattern to them. But Taleb would say that it's complete randomness. Um, and he says actually the world is dominated by black swans and that they are the norm. And so this is interesting when he says this because if you, if you take this at face value, it means that this, uh, this earth simulator is probably not going to work in the way that, that the European Commission actually wants it to, right? Yeah. It's, it wouldn't be a situation where, oh, just occasionally you have a black swan that throws a monkey wrench into the, into our, our understanding of the world. It's not like occasionally, oh, occasionally there's a bin Laden. Occasionally there's a, there's a Hitler or an Einstein that, that kind of changes the way it works. Mm-hmm. No, he's saying they're everywhere. That, uh, that, that the, the world continues to change at a, at a, at a steady rate based on the, the actions of these various black swans, both individuals and just random events uh, in the world around us in these varying uh, spheres of activity. Right. So it's great to have these predictive models, but if you can't uh, build in some sort of system for ferreting out black swans or you don't have a system in there that says, oh, okay, well, we, we think this is going to happen based on what's, you know, historically the, the data stream that's coming in. But if you can't run that up against something that says, you know, Forget it. This might actually not happen, or you have five other variables. Mm-hmm. Uh, then it sort of <laughs> it sort of discounts the system as a whole. And even if you did have the black swan effect or events built in, you're still not going to get that one answer that they so desperately want that says this is the right answer. Right. Because you're going to get four variables, five variables, ten variables spit out at you, and you're back at square one. And and th- this is something that really blew my mind. Um, when you when you think imagine you you did build this just enormously complex uh model of the world this uh living earth simulator uh what gets me is the the feedback lo- loops you eventually uh fall into oh yeah because the recursive yeah because, because you're building you're building a model of the world that has access to a model of the world that has access to a model of the world that has access to a model of the world and it just like it, it just it blows my mind to, to think of that. How would that pan out? It just would the, the complexity would just would spiral out uh, forever. Well, and there's a, another point here that um, even if you did have a couple of answers spit out in a in a scenario, right? Mm-hmm. That seemed like okay, this is the best course of action because you have such a complex system and you can't even understand how that data um, came to that conclusion. Then mm-hmm. you're probably less likely to trust it in the first place. Yeah, yeah, uh, and in fact, it lines up interestingly with climate change, man-made climate change, and our our attempts to understand it. Uh, the scientific findings that have come out arguing uh, the, the point that hey, humans are are altering global climate, and here are some things we should do to stop it. And and just uh, and just how how little of that has been uh, has resonated with the uh, decision makers and with the general public in some cases. Right, right. So they have a bunch of information there, and they still can't act on yeah, it. Yeah, we ask our 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 biggest reasoning machine that we have available to us science, mm-hmm. what we should do about a given situation, we get an answer for it, and not not everyone's going to listen. So is it going to be any better if we have a a complex simulation of, of existence that we can turn to? Are people going to trust that? And indeed, are people going to trust this supercomputer that has that is using reasoning that we can't even fathom uh, to tell us uh, what we should do? And what if what indeed if, if its uh, suggestion is something that seems nonsensical? Well, then there's this whole idea, too, that uh, all of this is predicated on us even understanding our existence in the first place and mm-hmm. how our existence is the fact that you and I are sitting here and everybody, you guys are listening. This is a, a black swan event. 
in and of itself. And what I mean about that is the odds of our existence. Um, There's a a Harvard uh, professor, Dr. Ali Benazar, who says, so what's the probability of you existing? This is a quote. He says, it's the probability of two million people getting together about the population of San Diego, each to play a game of dice with trillion-sided dice. They each roll the dice, and they all come up with the exact same number, say, 550, uh, 1,343,279,001. Yeah. That's the number. Mm-hmm. So, you know, we've talked about this before, too, just uh, in terms of the rare Earth theory about yeah, how the, the fact Goldilocks that life uh, theory, yeah. on, on, on Earth uh, came about and, and how their circumstances were just right. But this is a rarity as far as we know. Right. Yeah. So it's, yeah, we, we have a whole podcast devoted to this, but, but it, the arguments often come down to, um, it's such a rare event that this earth exists. Does that mean that we're special or, you know, but, but we can't think scientifically, we can't view ourselves as special. So how do we, how do we wrap our heads around that one? So yeah, yeah, yeah. there you go. There you go. And then if this, if this simulator, if this, uh, future ICT, if it actually, it, works, right? Mm -hmm. If it comes to fruition and it's useful in actually predicting uh, black swans, really, because that's what the end result of that should be, uh, then what does that mean about science? What does that mean about thought experiments? You know, if everything is answerable and predictable, is it the end of science? I don't know. And and then likewise, it also brings to mind uh, any kind of corporate situation where you have a problem. What's the first thing people do? Meeting about it, right? Committee about it. Right. Let's form a task force to, to talk about this, uh, this situation and come up with some recommendations. To what extent would this simulation, this, uh, this living earth simulator be a version of that to where we're like, Oh, we have a problem. Um, you know, there's a, there's a, there's suffering in the world somewhere. What should we do about it? Throw into the simulator and then we get the results. And then, uh, the, the simulator gives us a list of recommendations and we end up following none of them. Right. We, oh, we don't have the budget for that. Right. Right. Because oh, we've, we've talked about it. We, we put the, the, the info into the machine. It, uh, it, uh, spit us out some numbers. So we're good, right? Well, at least we can finally, uh, let the cat out of Schrodinger's box, right? Yeah. <laughs> Poor little dude. All right. Well, uh, let's have the robot bring us, uh, something to read. Greetings, oh. Arnold. Thank you. There we go. All right. Well, we heard from a listener by the name of Dustin. Dustin writes in and says, Hi, Robert, Julie, and the rest of the STBYM staff. I wanted to say thanks for your episode on misophonia. My whole life has been driven uh, nuts by chewing, swallowing, and smacking. I always thought that my reaction wasn't normal, but now I realize that I'm not alone out there. It was really fascinating to hear about others' triggers. At least I know when I expect my triggers and can take steps to cope with uh, the overwhelming anxiety. If a person's trigger was the crunching of leaves, then that must be hell. I really hope that the more uh, research uh, develops on this topic. Thanks for all of your hard work and the wonderful show. Yep, that was really great to hear. We've had so many people uh, write in about misophonia. It's really interesting. It seems to be just anecdotally uh, more uh, widespread than we thought. Yeah, I mean, I, I find myself thinking about it all the time, too, whenever I let petty things, uh, sounds annoy me. And I, yeah. and I sort of have to step back and I'm like, oh, maybe I have a touch of misophonia. And then I'm like, well, be conscious of it. Don't let it irk you. And, and luckily, I don't have severe enough uh, reactions that, uh, that, that that 
doesn't work. You know? Yeah, yeah. You know what? Christmas was hard for me because yeah. I've got a three-year-old and there was a lot of styrofoam around, oh, and I was like, oh, please stop. All right, and here's another one. Uh, this is from a listener, Neil. Neil writes in and says, "Hi, Robert and Julie. Super podcast again. Didn't know about Terry Pratchett's sword made out of meteor. Do they call them sky swords?" He's uh, responding to our Way of the Sword podcast. Just a note on Kendo. Uh, the foot stomp happens uh, at the time of the strike or cut, not before, or at least uh, not as a warning. The stomp, uh, fumikomi, is part of the cut. Typically, for a cut to be counted, you need to stomp, call out what you are cutting, and, of course, land the cut in the place that you have called out. This is all to demonstrate what Kendoka call kiken ta ichi, the oneness of the spirit, ki, with the sword, ken, and the body, tai. You can, of course, foot stomp before a cut, but typically this is a, a feint to get a reaction, either a flinch, uh, or start from the other kendoka, which might reveal uh, a hesitation to exploit immediately or just put them on edge, or an attack, which you uh, might counterattack or otherwise blunt. I am not sure I would call it a warning, since the intention is usually not that charitable. Uh, that said, kendo is a great martial art, no disrespect to other sword arts, and well worth the effort. Uh, fun uh, to boot, and uh, the gear is cool, too. Anyway, thanks for the super podcast series. Cheers, Neil. Cool. Yeah, I was so uh, glad to hear the information. I saw some of the kendo in the documentary, Reclaiming the Blade, and it seemed as though they were stomping as a warning, but it's great to hear that information, and it makes it even that much more intriguing of a, a martial art. Yeah. It's kind of. It sounds a lot like it's kind of like the like a, a lunge, like you see. I mean, I not that I've ever been in a fight, but you know, you see people in like in a fighting situation, and one will sort of like lunge at the is, other actually. to sort of put yeah. them off edge. Yeah. And, uh, it's one of those. But I like this idea of this one oneness of the spirit and the sword, and um, and that's why they they do the little foot stomping. I also was thinking the that little foot stomping. the little foot stomping because they have tiny little feet. All kendo martial artists have tiny little feet. Okay. I'm kidding. Um, but uh, but I made it made me think of playing pool. Like yep. if you were to call out a pocket, that you would do it at the same time that you were to hit the ball. Oh, or kind of like right. Babe Ruth, like pointing out yeah. the field, saying yeah. where he's going to hit the ball. Yeah. yeah. Saying, you sucker, try. <laughs> Just try to get it. Well, hey, uh, we would love to hear what anyone has to uh, say about the uh, the idea of a living Earth simulator. Um, what do you think about it? Do you, I mean, do you do you, uh, do you think it's a great idea? Do you think it's at all feasible? Uh, and how do you imagine a future in which we have access to one? Yeah. Um, would you want an app on your phone? Yeah, because that was one of the things uh, they, they talk about uh, is the idea that if we had this simulator in place, you would basically be able to get apps where you could see like. And I imagine something would be kind of fun. Like someone would probably be like, "What would a zombie apocalypse actually look like? Let's load that in." Yeah, yeah. What would it be like if uh, you know just any kind of crazy scenario you could think of? You could. Conceivably, have an app for it to 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 load in uh, to check, and I'm, and you can just imagine everyone from like every business in the world would have some sort of access to this uh, model, so they could test their various uh, you know, promotional materials, uh, uh, etc. But let us know what you think. You can find us on Facebook and Twitter. Uh, we are Blow the Mind on Twitter, and you can find us on Facebook just by searching for Stuff to Blow the Mind. And you can drop us a line at Blow the Mind at HowStuffWorks.com. Be sure to check out our new video podcast, Stuff from the Future. Join House to Work staff as we explore the most promising and perplexing possibilities of tomorrow. Tomorrow.